Also, I was so hungry. I had been doing, I had resigned myself to a life of having jobs that I hated. And when I got a look at some at getting to write for a living, I, I was there just 24-7. I never left the office. Mm -hmm. I would do anything. I would write, I would beg people, can I write your picture captains for you? I would do anything. And, uh, you know, they, <laughs> they couldn't fire me. I mean, I was like Gollum or something. So, Jeff. Kyle. So what's going on? This is the part where we normally do an introduction, walk you through how we know the guest, but because we have such a good show today and such a good guest, I just want to get right to it. Cool. Here we go. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. Uh, if you go on the Time Magazine website, uh, you will see that it says, Lev Grossman is Time's book critic and its lead technology writer, and he is the author of the New York Times bestselling novels, The Magicians, The Magician King, and The Magician's Land. So we have Lev on the show today, and uh, how are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah? I'm doing well. Good, good. I mean, it's a nice, crisp evening. Uh, it's actually the most beautiful evening it has been in perhaps quite some time. It's about or, 70 degrees, and it's not raining, and it's not miserable, which is probably not par for the course in New York, at least. Well, I think it's the same weather that we had you know, at the last episode that we recorded where we talked about the weather. But yeah. <laughs> we just get really excited about the weather. Let's talk about the weather the whole time, oh, and yeah. it'll be kind of like a wrong footing thing where everybody will they'll keep waiting for us to stop talking about the weather. We'll just never so mention we never do. the show. <laughs> be like we, a, we'll never mention the story. Yeah, it's we like a... A one-hour episode of Lev Grossman talking about clouds. <laughs> I'm a particular fan of stratocumulus. Nice. <laughs> yes. Nice. Not a lot of people go that way. No. Well, so. speaking of, of you know weather... Um, I you Jeff know is the king of segues by yeah, the way. Yeah, killer transition. Yeah. I'm just, just I'm I'm pins and needles. <laughs> Segway. Where man. is this going? Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to talk to you first about this piece. That you first of all, Lev has written you know for every outlet that you can imagine. He's very prolific. Um, he has a series which you know we mentioned before in the intro. Uh, he has a series of books that are kind of exploding right now, um, or they did a few years ago, and now they just got a TV show on on the Sci Fi Channel, which uh, I believe prior to this airing just had the 10th episode um run and it, it's really good and we're going to get into it in a little bit and, mm. and kind of see what where the creative differences and, and similarities lie but to start i thought that there was a really apt piece that you wrote for buzzfeed a couple years ago where um you had just graduated from college and you knew that you wanted to be a writer and you hmm. didn't quite know how to do it so you just drove until you ended up in maine and this piece, for anybody who wants to check it out, is called uh, How Not to Write a Novel. How Not to Write Your First Novel. How Not to Write Your First Novel. And you actually suggested to me earlier that this is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> so um, so tell us about that piece. Yeah, sure. This is, that's, a, that's a piece that uh, uh, I, it took me... It took me many, many years and many goes over that uh, to write it. I spent probably 10 years just trying to write the story uh, of this experience I had failing to write uh, uh, because it was such a dark, dense knot of just like futility and, and depression. Uh, it, the, the piece, um, this, well, the, the story takes place uh, the fall after I graduated college, um, which is fall of 1991. Uh, and I so badly wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer so badly. Uh, and I just had no idea how you went about doing it at all. My parents are um, um, were English professors and, and writers. Uh, my dad was fairly well an American poet. So, you know, there was always writers around. Um, but how the actual writing uh, 
got done. Um, I never got a good look at that. So uh, <coughs> I, uh, it was sort of any, any, anyone's guess. And, you know, I was raised in this, uh, it was just like this very sort of, this family that wanted to be like, you know, the, it was like the, gla- the glass family, the, you know, in the cylinder mm-hmm. thing, but not that, but really wanted to be that. So we were all just had to be really special and sort of interesting and magic and stuff like that. So I was like, you know, I, I graduated uh, from Harvard, degree in uh, comparative literature. Uh, you know, I was just, I wasn't going to get a job. I was just going to drive, go out and drive and just find a little town and settle down and just write my stuff. Uh, which, you know, I, I sort of uh, st- started to do. I was going to drive cross-country, maybe go to Idaho, because Hemingway wrote in Idaho. Um, <laughs> Is that but, why it was Idaho? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering that. Yeah, no, I was really I was really attached to Hemingway at that time. Um, and I just, you know, I just kind of ran out of steam uh, around, like, Niagara. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I was just driving this little Subaru, and I was like, oh, my God, it takes so long. I'm just going to, I just... You know, I'd, so I'd sort of turn around and kind of – I couldn't go back home after sort of lighting out for the territories, my cog fan. So uh, I sort of turned back around and started driving, and it was the fall, and it was the – weather was terrible. And uh, the um, – uh, uh, what was the Supreme Court um, confirmation hearings were on? Um, what was Blakey on his name? Clarence uh, Thomas. Clarence Thomas. The Clarence Thomas were here when it was, it was uh, the all sort of sexual harassment thing was just on – the radio 24-7. I just listened to that all the time. And my car kept breaking down. And eventually I wound up in this little town in Maine. Um, and I, uh, I I rented a, f- a, a room in a farmhouse. Uh, and I just sat there kind of day after day. And I mean, I, this is straight out of college, um, straight out of Harvard, which was a really intense environment. Um, and suddenly there's just there's nobody <coughs> around. And uh, I'm in this tiny, tiny town um, where, with nothing happening and just staring at my Mac Classic all day, every day. And it was just like, it's like The Shining, um, except in, you know, in a worse, in a worse venue. I, well, I didn't even have a nice hotel. Uh, uh, it was just like this one tiny room with me just like slowly imploding in it, um, uh, becoming more and more introverted. And, uh, uh, you know, I had this idea that it would be the sort of journey of inner discovery. But as it turns out, the more time you spend alone with yourself, the less you know about yourself. <laughs> and I'm just like writing gibberish or like nothing at all. And it's nine. It, this is 1991. So, you know, there's no, there's no email or anything like that. There's no, you know, long distance calls actually cost money. You know, there's no cell phone. There's no texting. There's no Twitter. There's no Facebook. I was just so alone in this way that you just can't really be alone anymore. That uh, was. Uh, and it was uh, it was just a sort of dreadful black hole. And in the piece, I sort of narrate a little bit what form my personal degradation took. Um, uh, but it was just a it was a really valuable and painful lesson in uh, how writing does not does not get done. So it's it was a really interesting piece because I mean, first of all, it, it embodies exactly what we talk about in this podcast, where you know the stories that can't be written. Um, but this is you know quite literally like you couldn't you tried to write a book and you couldn't. Um, but you know, I just thought it was was pretty you know relevant to the story of so many people that you know grow up dreaming of being the next J D. Salinger or Hemingway or J K. Rowling or something, and just can't do it. I mean, I think there's also something universal in being fresh out of college and just failing at everything and not knowing what to do about it. And especially, I mean, it seems like this is an extenuating circumstance that you sought out, this crushing aloneness. Yeah. 
I just had such romantic ideas about what that was going to be like, um, and it just turns out to be this like a terrible thing to do to yourself. <laughs> do, you, do you think? Do you think it would have been different if you had actually made it across the country? <laughs> I think that you know I was. Um, uh, uh, it was. Uh, I was I was I was bringing hell with me, you know. Wherever I, wherever I went, there was the hell mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it wasn't going to be okay until I figured out that you know, uh, you know, you really need other people. You need a day job. You need distractions. Um, uh, in, in order to write, you need some other centers of gravity to pull you away from your writing, so you can come 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 back to it uh, and actually uh, get something done. Which has been kind of the shape of my whole career since then. Which is. Um, Having a job, having a family, have people around me all the time, so that uh, I don't, you know, collapse in on myself and become this black hole, you know, out of which no information or writing of any kind can can emerge. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think that's kind of where the flavor comes from when you're trying to write because you can't write about anything that you don't really know about. And you know, if you're just in a room by yourself, then you know, there's very few things that you're going to be able to experience. Yeah. I'm sure some people can accomplish that. They have this whatever sort of psychic setup is necessary uh, uh, to do that. But it turns out that I'm very unself-sufficient. Um, and I just had this dream about myself as like a, you know, I was just going to be this rogue planet all out of my own and emerge from the wilderness with this fantastic um, manuscript. That has nothing to do, as it turns out, uh, with how writing gets done. What was the next step in the journey for you? Because the the BuzzFeed piece ends right before that next stage begins. And you talk about having found what you needed afterwards. But can you tell (laughs) us a little bit about what that looked like, that next step? Yeah, it's one of those stories uh, on which I had to sort of impose closure a little bit. uh, Otherwise, it would have gone on and on in that vein. vein. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I left Maine, um, but then... uh, 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 I moved back home for a couple of weeks. Uh, I interviewed for a few um, internships. I, I got one in New York with the New Press, uh, which is a nonprofit press, which amazingly still exists. And uh, not dis- only do they still exist, they're still thriving. Thriving, yes. Uh, uh, despite having had a really bad intern in me. Uh, <laughs> that was my first experience with New York, uh, which was, you know, again, tough place to go when you're sort of already kind of flirting with depression and don't know anybody and don't have any money. Uh, and this is like the 90s, uh, early 90s, uh, big sort of crack situation in, in Midtown where I was living. Uh, uh, and, you know, again, having to, you know, go through this process of disillusionment about what the books business is like. I thought I might be a book editor, um, but it turned out, you know, that requires some very specific talents, um, which uh, I sort of lacked. Uh, I, I stuck it out at the New Press, uh, and they stuck it out with me um, for four or five months. Uh, uh, I drifted back to Boston, uh, where I interned with um, Faber and Faber. Uh, Faber actually had an American imprint at the time, which they then closed down and revived, uh, and I think they're re-relaunching now. Uh, I interned there for Fiona McRae, who went on to run Grey Wolf very successfully. Um, but after that, and after that internship ended. Um, uh, I, I sort of like ceased to exist or f- just fell out of the chronological continuum completely and stayed in my apartment for about 10 months. Um, again, just like producing nothing, doing it. I, temp- I te- did a lot of temping. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of word processing for, for law firms. Uh, I did a lot of transcribing. They would, I, you could, there was a job at the time which was transcribed, probably still exists. They would send you tapes of like, um, uh, uh, focus group interviews for products, 
you know, mall walkers brought in off the floor to look at, you know, some kind of, uh, 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 you know, fabric softener or something like that. And they would, the, I would type out their conversations and then sort of send them back to the company. Uh, and that was my job. Um, it was incredibly weird and, uh, and isolating. Um, this that doesn't happen any, happen anymore. The interview, the in, the the inter- internet has done a lot of things, bad things to the writing market, but it 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 does not allow you to isolate yourself and completely become inert in the way that that I did. Um, and uh, uh, I really, it's it it makes me sad when I think of all that time that I just wasted uh, sitting in my uh, room. Uh, I mean, there wasn't even you know you uh, uh, you know. Uh, you couldn't even get pornography on your computer at that time. <laughs> this is the dark ages what in which we were living. World. Yeah, you would purchase it in the form of magazines. It was just amazing. Uh, uh, and now the the unspoken king of the internet <laughs> is Pornhub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there, there was no hub. Uh, uh, we had all be our own Pornhubs. The hub was a stand yeah. with, with uh, privacy screens over the magazines. Um <laughs> Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, I ended. I followed that by going to, to grad school, graduate school. I really, I, I really evolved so slowly as a writer. Maybe I had to. I don't know. Uh, but it makes it looking back. It feels like I made one wrong turn after another. Um, uh, but you never know. As, as Aslan said, you never know what might have been. <laughs> might, might have been. <laughs> when, did, when did you feel that productivity, productivity equations start to shift? When did you start feeling like you were actually doing the work that you wanted to do? Your question contains within it a presupposition that that such a shift has occurred. <laughs> um, if it did, it did not occur um, for for many years after that. I spent three years at graduate school uh, in, in graduate school at Yale in comparative literature. I abandoned that. I went to work for um, uh, a couple of web startups in the late '90s. People forget that there was already a dot com crash that occurred in like '97, '98. Uh, I went through that. Uh, and eventually, I got a you know very menial job at, at Time Incorporated, um, taking down the um, they had bulletin boards in the late '90s, and my job was to remove uh, uh, obscenity, hate speech, and uh, copyright uh, violations on their website oh, on the one from Time's website, which was called Pathfinder. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because they named it after a Jeep because they admired the Jeep so much. Um, <laughs> Uh, that was my job for several, for several years. Uh, that was my glamorous entry into into uh, Time Incorporated. Um, <laughs> if they could only see you now. Yeah, no, I know, right? Where did that? Whatever happened to that guy? Uh, um, and you know, I, I published a, an early novel during that period in '98, um, which was very unsuccessful, and it's actually about to be reissued. Um, but it, it was very unsuccessful at the time. Uh, and I was so discouraged it took me six more years before I produced another piece of fiction. Um, writing fiction every day, by the way, just very, very slowly and um, with a lot of futility. Uh, how, how much do you write every day? Has this been a practice since you know you were up in Maine? Um, I, I, I can't say I literally write every day uh, because I have three children and my mm-hmm. in a day job is just too chaotic, but tr- making that attempt every day uh, as waking up every morning with the intention of writing as much fiction as possible, uh, which you know could turn out to be none, but you know, giving it a shot every morning. Yeah, I mean uh, that's the most important part. Uh, someone told me once that uh, I, to- I told them that I wanted to be a writer, and he said, "Well, you're you're not going to do it." And I go, "Why?" He goes, "Because anybody who wants to be a writer like cannot do anything except write. They have this drive in them that makes them want to do it." And 
I mean, I talk about it a lot, but I, I definitely am not an everyday writer. I feel like it's a, it's a tough thing. I, I, I think we're feeling a little bit of that weight of, you know, being in your 20s, not recognizing how to get to the path that you want to walk, which is being a writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it seems incredibly simple to just write. But then there's the looming question of what to write yeah, and whether or not you have something worthwhile to say about it. Well, uh, go ahead. Oh, no. I, I was just going to say, it's, uh, you know, you started on the message boards, but you've, you've since moved up and, um, you know, you've written for a dozen other publications. You've published five novels now. Um, is it five? Five, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you've been kind of a sweeping success at time as well. You know, you've had over a dozen cover stories, including one last week where you got an exclusive interview with Tim Cook um, about this, you know, Apple FBI thing. So, I mean, where did that transition occur? You just kept plugging? Yeah, it's, a, it's, I, it's something I try to point out to people as much as possible. Any success that I have ever had as a writer occurred after I was 30. So I, I, I meet people in their 20s, you know, who feel like, you know, it's just taking so long, um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, they've, they've done so little. Uh, I, I didn't get a, I didn't have a byline until I was 30, basically. I think my first very unsuccessful book came out when I was 30. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't uh, uh, become a writer at time until 2002. I was uh, 33. Uh, that's when my journalism <laughs> career really started. Uh, you know, so if you're if you're 28 and still, you know, you're stringing your freelancing, you're so far ahead of wherever I was uh, <laughs> at that time. It's it's so funny. You have so much time. You have so much time to fail and 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 re- and, and reinvent yourself and fail again. Uh, you get so many do-overs. It's just amazing when I look back at it. Uh, I so I things didn't click for me as a journalist until uh, I was about 33, uh, and that was. It was a lot of pushing at time. I mean, I began basically as not even an IT guy, but like managing IT guys at time. And uh, slowly, by pitching and repitching editors, by freelancing, passing myself off as uh, uh, you know as a literary person to like, for example, Time Out New York or um, uh, where else did I write for? Uh, um, uh, other magazines, <laughs> other <laughs> magazines. Wow, it was so long ago. Um, because I had a, an, I had an incomplete uh, graduate degree from Yale. Uh, that you know, that was my calling card, and I would just cold call these people, literally on the phone. I mean, mm-hmm. that was uh, uh, that you know that happened, uh, uh, and just trying and making mistakes over and over again, uh, and you know, slowly, eventually, kind of clawing my way to the next level. Uh, it was a very, it was a really slow process, a really slow process. In- so now you are both the book critic and the lead technology writer for Time Magazine. Yeah. Which, I mean, the two seem kind of at odds with each other. Yeah, it's, you know, it was a, um, I spent a lot of time, um, you know, it's a right place, right time thing. I spent a lot of time in the right place. I spent about five years at Time Inc., which was the right place, waiting for it to become the right time. And the right time arrived when AOL purchased Time Warner. Uh, and it was a huge financial disaster, and they wrote down $50 billion in a single year. And uh, a lot of the senior staff at time uh, took early retirement um, because they were making high salaries, and time couldn't afford them anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they really were looking for people to plug into slots, and they'd lost both their book critic, Paul Gray, who retired, and um, their uh, lead technology writer who went to the New York Times, I think the op-ed page, 
Um, and because I'd done tech work for them, they they said, okay, we'll, we'll give you a shot at writing some tech stuff. Uh, and I had been doing book reviewing for a while for Publishers Weekly and Time Out New York. Um, and so they let me sort of take <coughs> take a shot at um, uh, at the at the book reviews in both cases until they got a real person in. Um, but you know, I sort of limped along, and it was like I would turn in my copy on time. It was clean. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, there's nothing else that's important. Turn in your copy on time. Turn it in clean, um, so the sentences are complete. You know, they will forgive you so much if you do that. <laughs> and you know, eventually it became apparent they weren't going to hire anybody new. Also, I was so hungry. I had been doing. I had resigned myself to a life of having jobs that I hated, and when I got a look at some at getting to write for a living, I, I was there just twenty four seven. I'd never left the office. Mm-hmm. I would do anything. I would write. I would beg people, "Can I write your picture, Captain?s For you, I would do anything. And uh, you know, they <laughs> they couldn't fire me. I mean, I was like Gollum or something. Not even Gollum. <laughs> Who in Game of Thrones? Who's the guy? Uh, uh, um, uh, Varys. Sorry, Varys the Spider. Not Varys. <laughs> I wasn't Varys the Spider. Who's the guy? No, he's super degraded. I'm, for, I'm forgetting all their names. Theon Greyjoy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, yeah. yeah, I was Reek. I was like Reek. You know, uh, rhymes with weak or whatever. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. just like you're gonna fire that guy. No, he'll do anything. Yeah. He'll literally do anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, it, it, this is so funny to hear you say this because when I met you, you were in front of three thousand people interviewing Ray Kurzweil. Um, so in like, I went to your book table after. And that's the first interaction I, or it's the first time I ever saw The Magicians um, was after that interview. And I bought it because I thought that, you know, the interview was great. And I was, I was thrown into this world that, you know, people call these books like, um, you know, adult Harry Potter or, you know, mix uh, Narnia with a wrinkle in time or something. But the truth is they're super unique and it, there's not really an easy way to describe them. Um, They're just good original writing that you know people are gonna like be reading years from now um and that shows with with how successful they've been uh with their critical acclaim and with the media and with the new tv show that just came out um and it's interesting it's interesting to hear you having read those and knowing the depth the variation in them and hearing you describe yourself as so hungry you would write picture captions (laughs) Is there like, so is this, is the, the, basically the building of the world that's involved in the Magicians trilogy, is that happening concurrently with all the stuff we're talking about now at time? Uh, yeah, a little bit time shifted. Uh, I got, I, I, I got on staff at time in 2002. Um, my second novel came out in 2004. Uh, and, uh, uh, at which point, you know, to put it in perspective, I was 35 when Codex came out. Um, it was my second book. My first book had taken me five years. Codex took me six years. That was um, that. That was after um, uh, you know, and write off four years writing bad short stories that were never published. Uh, I'd been writing fiction for fifteen years at that time. Uh, uh, I was thirty-five. <laughs> um, Codex was a mild success. Um, it's very difficult to get your second book published if your first book is a flop, because mm-hmm. um, everybody. I don't know how they all Barnes and Noble. They've got that database. They know that you're a money loser, and everybody in everybody in town knows. Um, and and they see get your manuscript. They just call it up and say, "Oh right, <laughs> 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 that guy." It's really hard to get that guy past the um, you know the um, acquisitions committee. Uh, so uh, 2004 uh, uh, Codex probably got 30 rejections, but eventually 
it it earned out its advance, which was small, twenty five thousand. Um, and uh, you know, so I sort of got another bite at the apple, and uh, I you know I, I sat down to start writing my third book, uh, and you know, time was time I was stable at time at that point. Uh, I'd been on staff for three for well yeah three years. Um, and you know, I really, I, I had to, to to really get a grip. I I just had my first child. Um, uh, I had two books, you know, that were mixed success. I didn't feel that they were personally a big aesthetic success for me. I hadn't, I really hadn't found my voice as a fiction writer, um, which it, it's you know sort of boggling if you imagine doing this for fifteen years and still every morning sitting down and, and trying to invent yourself on the page and thinking, nope, that's not it. <laughs> Uh, and you know something cracked. I guess you know there's only so much you can take. There's only so much failure. There's only so much writing inauthentically that you can stand. Uh, and as much as you want to undermine yourself and deny you know your sense of really who you are and screw yourself over, you just get exhausted after a while. And that part of you breaks down, and you start writing things you actually mean. Uh, and that's what happened for me. And it partly it was writing fantasy that kind of. Uh, uh, broke through for me. Uh, and of course, as almost always happens, this was a side project. It wasn't the main thing I meant to be doing. I basically thought, wouldn't it be funny if you rewrote Harry Potter, uh, but made it American and, you know, put in all the swears and all the drinking and all the sex and depression and whatever else, you know, that, that rolling sort of, um, is, 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 um, uh, you know, just sort of digitally removing after the fact. Uh, and you know what would what would it feel like to tell that story? How would that go? Um, and you know it turned out to be incredibly fun. Uh, and you know it's it's when you're not. I wasn't really even paying atten- too close attention to what I was writing. I was really focused on some other book that I can't even remember now that I was trying to write. Uh, but you know I I had this sort of funny like pseudo fan fiction project going on, and I found it hilarious, and I loved it so much. And I wrote, I wrote it so fast, and I enjoyed it so much. And you know, before I knew it, I was pitching my agent on this idea, um, which seemed really, really crazy at the time. Uh, and that, and and that was it. I mean, it took me five years to get the magicians into publishable form. Um, but that was the first time when you know I, I, I got a whiff of something real, and I was like, I, had, you know, now it's on. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, and how do you divide your brain between writing fiction and nonfiction? You know, how does one skill kind of inform the other? Well, um, I, I want—I try to think of them as being kind of firewalled off from each other, but of course, that's not the case. Um, I mean, writing—you know, writing. Obviously, writing—it's—it's a—it's a, it's a skill, just like playing the violin. I truly believe that. I'm—I'm um, I'm not a great believer in talent. Uh, I am a great believer in practice. And you know, putting in your Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours, uh, and you know, writing, writing picture captions every day, um, just uh, writing little celebrity blurbs, uh, uh, you know, news briefs or whatever, uh, writing them for Deadline, writing them so that people will see them. Um, it really just knocks a lot of the crap and a lot of the, you just learn to vary your sentence structure and um, write transitions. Uh, and you know, s- eventually that stuff becomes really second nature to you. And you know, it takes the mystery out of it. You know, you don't sit around waiting for inspiration as I did from approximately 1991 through 1995 or so. <laughs> uh, you don't sit around for that. You just you're like, okay, right. Uh, you know, at the end of the week they're going to press, so this little box has to be full of words. You write them down. Those you get good habits writing that stuff. Um, uh, uh, so you know, so that that helped me a lot. Um, 
uh, it, it got me in the habit of, you know, really getting out of my head, realizing that writing is, is communicating. It's not creating this little word sculpture that, you know, you sit in your room and admire. You're actually trying to convey information to people. Uh, and that's, I find, for me, that was a good habit to get into um, as a fiction writer. You learn how to explain complicated things simply. So, and um, that, a good example of you doing that is uh, your recent cover story for Time Magazine, where you interviewed Tim Cook, and it was interesting because you published the the actual transcript of what you wrote mm. next to the article that you that came of it. And uh, Kyle read both. I, I only read the article, um, but I mean, it, it's it, tell us about that that process. Also, tell us about that story because that's awesome. It was an interesting story to write, um, which uh, I'll tell you that I probably shouldn't. I, I actually resisted writing that story. They had wanted for several weeks to do a story about the uh, conflict between Apple and the FBI, and I felt as though this is a really it's a slow-rolling concept. It is a c- conflict. It is a minefield of complicated technical and uh, legal arcana, which are going to be hard to explain. Um, it's a story that people felt they already knew. Like, you put that on the cover. What's the cover line that is going to... Suggest to people, wait, there's something in here I haven't already heard because this has been covered to death, solid mm-hmm. for a month, <clears throat> and in publications that have uh, a news cycle of you know ten minutes as opposed to a week, um, which Time has. Um, but uh, uh, you know, the only thing that was going to break that I think was you know extensive access to Tim Cook, um, and eventually Apple decided they they wanted that they wanted to they wanted access to our platform to tell that story. Uh, so we went out there. It, was, it wasn't just me, actually. It was me and Nancy Gibbs, who's mm-hmm. the editor-in-chief of Time. Um, we went together. Uh, so the, it was like the added anxiety of, 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 talk, of being in front of Tim Cook and my boss's boss <laughs> at the same time. Um, you, there's no way to say non-stupid things when you're, those two people are staring at you. Like, everything sounds stupid. Um, uh and uh, yeah, it was you know I I had about forty eight hours notice, so you I had to really just sort of burrow heavily into into all the issues. It's interesting. I hadn't been back to the Apple campus for about ten years um, because I had been on bad, not great terms with with Steve Jobs. Uh, we had, Jobs and I had been on good terms, and then 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 not so good terms. Oh, uh, you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> it's not so. It, it, I it, I don't feel special. It's not an unusual thing. No, uh, no. I, 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 yeah, you could feel special. Yeah, you, yeah. you should. <laughs> that he knows to be on bad terms with you makes you special. <laughs> yeah, read the Isaacson biography. He was on bad terms with so many people. Um, uh, uh, but I hadn't. So I hadn't been back to the Apple campus for ten years. That was interesting. I'd see. I'd interviewed Cook a few times, but never there. Uh, so Be- yeah, before he was CEO, uh, yeah, before he was CEO. Huh. Um, uh, although it's a total, I'm such a doofus. I interviewed him a couple of times. I I didn't realize that uh, he's he's so soft spoken, um, and he was so intent on staying out of the limelight that I had no, I didn't get that he was a successor. I don't think a lot of people did at the time. So yeah. I remember being like, "Why am I talking to this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Where's Steve?" <laughs> um, so I would sort of, you know, I I didn't know what to ask him. Now I understand what a formidable person he is, uh, but I, I, I underestimated him. Um, and I think it's part of his sort of self-presentation strategy. Uh, anyway, so it's, you know, it's very interesting. We talked for about a, 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 a solid hour. Um, uh, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's very dense. It's tough to follow his reasoning in real time because he thinks very fast. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I do my best to, to keep up with him. Uh, looking at the transcript, you know, it's just 
I think all journalists have this. It's an agony of the questions you didn't ask, the objections you didn't raise, the time you cut him off when he was about to tell you the thing uh, that would have made the whole story. Um, but, you know, a, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of good stuff came out of it. It was interesting. And then, you know, uh, th- three, four days after um, uh, the story came out, uh, the whole landscape changed because the FBI backed out of their hearing. They said, oh, we have a way to crack the phone. doesn't need Apple. Uh, and then you look at the cover story and say, right, okay, that was news for four days. And, and now this thing that, you know, I, that I stayed awake for 72 hours straight to write, um, now it's sort of obsolete, you know. I think the, the next thing. I, so having just read it today, having just read through both the article and the transcript, and even knowing that the FBI was, in fact, backing out of it, I don't think this fight goes away because they found that solution. So I think it holds relevance. And especially the transcript where you get into the reasoning um, one of the things that comes through really clearly in the article is the philosophy behind the resistance that Tim Cook puts up. But as you say, when you get into the transcripts, you start to see the quickness of the reasoning and the depth of the knowledge of the, um, what is it, the All Writs Act? The All Writs Act, right. Yeah. Even, even then, it, it's, it's, it, it, you know, even then, it, w- the, the piece, you know, which runs quite long, is still a gross oversimplification because, you know, this, we talk a lot about the right to privacy. What is that? It's not in the Constitution. There's no such thing as the right to privacy. You know, it is a collection of little bits and pieces in the Constitution and and legal precedents created since then um, that we talk about as a single thing. But actually, it's this complicated construct. Anyway, it's it's a why did it's a real rabbit hole. I want to take a second here, just in case you're enjoying the show, to tell you how to subscribe and where to find more. You can find us at tinyletter.com slash podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And make sure to give us a review while you're there. Back to the show. Why did you and Steve Jobs not get along? Um, lots of complicated reasons. Um, uh, one of the things that you become increasingly aware of as a journalist is, uh, you know, often you'll write a story. Uh, for example, um, uh, when the iPhone launched, uh, Jobs would often have somebody go backstage with him for the week before the la- a major product launched and shadow him. This comes out in um, that movie, the the Aaron Sorkin movie. That mm-hmm. just got, um, I was so pleased that they didn't include the iPhone launch in that because then somebody would have had to play me. <laughs> <laughs> and it would, probably would have been Paul Giamatti and it would not have been like a flattering portrait. Uh, <laughs> but I was shadowing Jobs for that week before uh, the iPhone launched, uh, which in retrospect is amazing. Uh, I mean, I, nobody saw that phone outside the um, company except for me and you know the heads of the cell phone companies that they were partnering with. Um, uh, it's, an, it's sort of an amazing memory. But you know, Jobs had Jobs was a, obviously it was a was the king of all control freaks. He had certain things that he wanted out of a story that was going to be done about him. I was at a phase in my life where I responded badly to authority and um, people telling me what to do. Uh, you're supposed to have this phase when you're 14. I had it when I was like 37. And, you know, jobs, uh, uh, you know, jobs push, I would push back. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we just sort of didn't have a great time together. I, it's, it's a great regret of mine that I didn't find a way to... Uh, uh, to to get along with him better and have more interesting conversations with him. I look at someone like Walter Isaacson. Walter's not a pushover. Um, he had great conversations with Jobs. He just found a way to do it diplomatically. I, I struggled with that. I couldn't do it. You know, Jobs, he, if you didn't agree with him, he wouldn't leave you alone until you agreed with him. And and I, 
uh, didn't find a gracious way to sort of push back at him. Uh, and so, you know, it's incredibly fascinating experience. Uh, the story came out of it wasn't what Jobs wanted. Um, and he realized he wasn't going to get what he wanted out of me. Um, so I sort of, I wasn't, I wasn't asked back. Hmm. Uh, I, I interviewed Jobs half a dozen times in my life. It was the last one that kind of did it. Um, Why does Apple have such an affinity to Time Magazine? Because they use Time for like most of their their big news. Yeah. Uh, well, they have a they have a, ro- have a rotating um, uh, uh, um, uh, set of sort of. Yeah, of venues. Yeah, but we they do use like time a lot. Time. Yeah, it's a good communicator to a general audience. Uh, it's sort of the last magazine standing in its category. Yeah. Um, uh, Jobs. Um, Jobs always liked it. He liked the cover of Time. Um, <laughs> as I find, people do. People yeah. respond to it. Jonathan Franzen. I did a cover story on him. Um, you wrote that? Yeah, that was me. Oh wow. Uh, I don't know that he would have done it, but you know. To people who grew up in a certain time, the cover of Time, that was, you know. He was he was the first author on the cover of Time since Hemingway, right? No, no. There were lots between him. Was there? Hemingway. Yeah. Tom Wolfe was on the cover. Okay. Uh, Tony Morrison, I think, for Beloved. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, uh, yeah, there were, there were others. Um, uh, Updike was on the cover a couple times. Uh, That's great. Uh, anyway, but, you know, there's certain people who re- just really like the, <laughs> they like the red border. Uh <laughs> I mean, wasn't that the, and maybe this is just part of the movies, but wasn't that a big issue where uh, they didn't put Jobs on the cover a- after the Apple One or Apple Two launched or whatever, and they, they put the computer there instead, and he got really upset? Yeah, I wish I knew the real story of that. Yeah. Uh, there was a flap. There was a bit of a flap um, about that, and certainly <laughs> huge regrets on our part that we <laughs> named, we never made him Person of the Year. That was it. Uh, which is absurd, uh, given, considering the people who have been Person of the Year, that Jobs never was. Yeah. Um, one time, one time, it was me. <laughs> that's I remember right. that story. It was very big for me, personally. <laughs> you yeah. know I wrote that story, too. Did you really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was me. You well, know so much about me. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because um, writing the cover story of Time Magazine several times is not your biggest achievement, um, which is wild to think about. I, I pulled this from your website, but you had a line that said... Um, the Magician's books have now been published in 25 countries and have gotten praise from, among others, George R. R. Martin, John Green, Audrey Niffenegger, Aaron Morgenstern, Joe Hill, William Gibson, Kelly Link, Gregory Maguire, Juno Diaz. A sci-fi series based on the trilogy is currently shooting and will premiere in early 2016, so that, that part already happened. But um, what does that feel like, like kind of hitting that level of success? And I know that you're humble enough to, to think that you haven't hit it yet, but... You know, this is one of the the series that is quickly becoming canon to you know fantasy and sci-fi you know readers. <laughs> so yeah, um, it, it 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 freaks me out. It freaks me out. It's a it's a fact to the extent that that what you just said is a fact, which is not you know a huge extent, but it's true. Th- those people did say nice things about the books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's not compa- it's it's hard to reconcile with my very my l- very low self esteem, uh, and uh, uh, I you know every once in a while I sort of wake up and think, um, wow, that thing that I really really wanted to happen actually it's really sort of happened, um, uh, and my wife's like you know whacks me on the back of the head and is like no fucking kidding, <laughs> and she does it in an Australian accent but I can't do that <laughs> accent really, um, but yeah. Um, it, it is. It is. It's a. It's a strange and wonderful thing. 
especially when I think back on the 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 really the many years that uh, where I really rated as a as a I mean people really looked at me and said wow what happened man you know uh, you know things were going well and then Jesus went so far off the rails uh, <laughs> and I did go really far off the rails I, it just goes to show that like writing is really it's not that much about about um, it's not that much about you know, writing really great short stories when you're an undergraduate, because I did not do that. Um, it's much more about, uh, as Jobs would say, and he would have been right, um, you know, it's about iterating. It's about making something, watching how people react to it, watching how it plays, taking that, folding it, that back in, into, into what you're doing, and then doing it again, mm -hmm. and then doing that, you know, every day for 15 years, and then you're ready to start. So talk talk to us about the TV show. Yeah, I was going to say. So one of the new iterations is one of the new iterations of your work is an entirely different medium. What's that been like going through the development process <coughs> to take your idea and sort of marry it to the medium that is television? Um, that's been a great experience, uh, and in some ways a very difficult one. Um, but uh, you know, much less difficult than not having a TV show based <laughs> on your work. <laughs> I, I, having a TV show, I was really invested in this idea, and actually it took me a long time to make it, make it work. The Magicians was not one of these things that was sort of options before, optioned before it comes out, and you know, Spielberg is attached and whatever. Uh, nobody paid any attention to it until after it was published, and even then I spent, I spent five years um, stumping around Hollywood, showing this to people, and getting it set up, and having it be canceled. Um, six or seven times, uh, m most notably at Fox, where uh, they commissioned a, a, a pilot script, which was a good script, and then uh, they killed it again because they lost all their money in that Spielberg dinosaur thing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my That's, that's my the worst. Terra Nova. Remember Terra Nova? Oh, yes. It was so oh, expensive. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was so excited for Terra Nova, and then I watched Terra Nova. I, you know, <laughs> I just, I think that they, it was just like, wow, another big genre CGI play, um, you know what can we cut from our budget, and and uh, yeah, I mean it's tough when when these things get canceled when it's out of your control. You know, like you didn't do anything wrong; it well, just wasn't in the cards. Yeah, uh, but we set this thing up everywhere. We set it up at the CW. We set it up at you know ABC Family. We set it up at Sci Fi once before this, and it died. So you know we'd really been around and around, and uh, eventually my I my my agent came back to me. I'd fired like three or four of these guys, but this guy. <laughs> The next guy um, <laughs> was like, yeah, the property's been exposed, which means in Hollywood, like, everybody's had this thing on their desk. It's not going to go. Uh, and, you know, and yet, uh, uh, a couple summers ago, uh, I got a call from the guy who's been producing it and said, look, you know, it's still got some fans. Uh, and um, uh, this woman, Sarah Gamble, who did Supernatural, and John McNamara, who did Profit and a bunch of other shows. Um, we're like, yeah, you know, we're gonna, uh, uh, we're gonna give it a shot. Um, and it was, you know, even that, uh, it was very difficult for me actually. I mean, you know, being a writer, why do you become a writer? Because you can control everything. Everything is yours. You do. You write all the dialogue. You know, you dress all the characters in their clothes and dress all the sets and and do all the camera angles. Everything is you. And then you hand it to people, and they're writing your characters. They've got somebody else doing the costumes. Somebody else is doing the sets. The studio's arguing about where you're going to shoot. I mean, you, it, it all passes out of your hands, and you're collaborating, which I had never done before. 
And I really, uh, like, I think of myself as a person who's averse to, to conflict, but I really pitch some, some, some real tantrums over that. <laughs> this, this is so funny to me because I, I actually, one of my first, you know, one of the first times Lev and I ever spoke was when Quartz asked me to write a piece on fan fiction and how right. it was, uh, you know, kind of, I wrote this so long ago. Um, Quartz asked me to write a piece on, you know, what was going on in the world of fan fiction. And I interviewed Lev because his book is basically fan fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, you told me kind of the exact opposite at that point that, uh, you know, it's always it's fun for other people to uh, and I have to look back. Maybe I'm wrong, but, um, you know, you you were saying at the time that it's a cool exercise that the fans can get involved in. It makes it a collaborative experience. And, <laughs> and now that's kind of exactly what you're complaining about. I lied to you. <laughs> I lied to your face. No, I, I love that aspect of it. And, and I still do. Um, but something something was different about it that they were going to they were going to put it on screen the, so the frame around it is different when they're going to say we're going to take this into TV and TV is big compared to books I mean books they have a certain cultural cachet but um, you know you sell a million books you're John Grisham you're the biggest guy in the game a million people watch your TV show you suck <laughs> you are not in the top 100 cable shows uh, you know, it's 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 not a good scene for you. So you're just talking about a lot of eyes on you, mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly people are saying, "Yep, this is this is Lev's thing," and you know, you million people plus, like, this is what Lev did. It's like I, I didn't do exactly that. I mean, that's not. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the thing basically, but I, you know, it's a little different. You get caught up when I. I mean, I get work work. I get bent out of shape out of commas and semicolons. So you know, when when they're casting it, when they are, you know, the storylines story changing. Uh, uh, yeah, I had to really learn to kind of go with that. Well, yeah, uh, you had a blog post right before this thing aired that said, like, there's some characters missing, there's some new characters, don't worry, I love it, it's, it's, you know, it's still my baby, and it's even better now, or, you know, it's like a different beast. Um, do you still feel that way? Yeah, I do. It took me two, a couple years to get to that play. I slowly watched it, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, come into, into being. I, I learned to trust the people who were working on it. I really like them personally and think they're really smart and funny. Uh, it took me a long time to get to that place. Now fans blow up and they're just, they're just sort of like, you know, where is such and such a character or who's that? Um, I totally get it because I blew up the first time and then I slowly, and I got to talk to the creators about why they were doing what they were doing and I slowly I came to understand how they were reshaping it. Um, uh, but I get it when people look at it and just think, what is this? Um, was, were there moments where you had to throw up rails is there anything that the creators have tried to change so far that you had to lay down the hammer? I want to be clear. I have no hammer. Ah, uh, there is no hammer. Yeah, uh, this I discovered. Um, <laughs> I discovered. It was just like, look at this hammer in my hand. I'm going to, it's coming down. Ready? It's coming. And they're like, remember, remember when we sent you that check and you put it in your bank account? <laughs> you gave us the hammer at that time. You may not have noticed it, but that was us. That was the hammer, the hammer of Thor, passed mm. passed to us. You have no hammer anymore. So I, you know, I would make strenuous arguments, but in the end of the day, if they wanted to do something, they would they would just do it. And not everything they did is what I would have done. Um, but I sort of roll with it. I, I like watching it. I see what's good about it. I see what's different, you know, from other shows. Uh, it's just it's and it, you know it makes it, it brings other people to the books, which is so super important. Have your book sales just like exploded? They haven't exploded. Uh, uh, they were doing really well before. No, they're they're, they're definitely good. Um, uh, I try not to look too closely at the numbers um, <coughs> because it makes me a little crazy. Um, but uh, 
you know, it's not it's not an order of magnitude, but mm-hmm. you know, they've definitely uh, they they've definitely bumped up from where they were, uh, which is great to see. The show hasn't been going that long. Um, I usually only look at my royalty statements every six months, and so I haven't seen the six month period. Yeah, from when the show's it's been, been two on. and a half, and and it's beautiful too because it's like you know this is kind of evergreen. The, the the thing with TV nowadays is that because of streaming services and you know on demand television, you know people are always watching TV shows that came out years ago just because it's easy to do. Yeah. So no, it's great, and you know it's, the show's on Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi's it's not HBO, but things now things float around in the ether. Doesn't matter that much what channel they're on. Mm-hmm. You know, and they just exist. They're on iTunes. You know, if you download them, you maybe notice that it was sci-fi, but it doesn't matter that much anymore. I mean, uh, honestly, the fact that it went to sci-fi instead of someplace like the CW, even though they're building a cache now of properties that are doing well in that sort of area with The Flash and Arrow, like, I was very happy to see it go to sci-fi because of things like The Expanse. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, yeah. That's a very good series that's on right now. Uh, Things in the past like Battlestar Galactica, which also rampant fan Was that sci-fi? Yeah. Huh. There's a trough between Battlestar Galactica and The Expanse, which contains Sharknado. Yeah, you know, it's many <laughs> yes. things. But when Sci-Fi it's came, a wide tr- it's yeah, a very wide. Sci-Fi trench, came yes. to us and we're like, "Look, we're tired of doing Sharknado. We want to get back to Battlestar, you know, and we're going to do it with The Expanse. We're going to do it with The Magicians." I'm um, so happy that so. you're telling me this now because Sci-Fi also just optioned uh, Dan Simmons Hyperion series. Did they? Yeah. And Bradley Cooper's attached to it. No kidding. Yeah. They sci-fi, they feel like they have something to prove and they uh, NBC is giving them some money to play with. Uh, so it's, it's kind of fun to watch they, what they've been doing. And you know, the networks, they're supposed to be the bad guy. The stuff that they have laid down to the extent that they even have had made changes in the show, I've always agreed with what they said. They were yeah. good. They have good instincts. Well, I think now that we've almost thoroughly exhausted the time we usually allot for the show, it might be actually time to get to the point of the show, which is talking about the stories that we struggle to tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've sort <laughs> of been, we've, we've been... We've been dancing with it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think we might have to actually get down to it. And you mentioned in the email that you have two stories that we could potentially tell, and both of them struck me as things that I would at least like to know about. So can you please tell them both now? <laughs> I think we're down to one now. Oh, did we already tell the... Well, uh, we touched on the... Well, what we, we could talk about the J.K. Rowling one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, which sort of gets at a lot of things. Um, uh, uh, it's <laughs> it's not a story I've told very uh, told very often, um, uh, but I'll tell it now. Uh, I'm so excited. The <laughs> it's that the thing is it's it's when you hear what the story is about, which is you know the time that I met J.K. Rowling, you think this is going to be a good story. It's not a good story. It's a very bad story. I'm already so invested, though, based on the players. Yeah, <laughs> it's you'll be. I'm going to disappoint you so horribly, <laughs> uh, as I disappointed myself and millions of other people. Um, this story happened in 2005, which was uh, <coughs> culturally a long time ago. 2005. That was, uh, you know, the the Harry Potter books were still coming out. That was right before Half Blood Prince came out, um, and it had been two years since Order of the Phoenix. Uh, and we, you know, we had entered peak Potter. I mean, it was such a huge phenomenon, um, and because it was so big, uh, Rowling wasn't doing a lot of public appearances at that time because you do them to sell books. She didn't need to do them, um, but uh, to be nice to her American publisher, Scholastic, she agreed to do one interview with one magazine in the U.S. And of course, there was a there was a big bake off at the time. Uh, I think a lot of magazines wanted that story. Um, I can remember 
me and my editor are going to lunch with a couple of vice presidents from Scholastic as a kind of um, tryout to sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, make the case that Time should do that story. Uh, and Time had had Rolling on the cover a couple of times, you know, um, and uh, I had never interviewed her, um, I think, but they figured uh, since I was easily the nerdiest person on staff <laughs> with the poorest social skills. I must be a huge Harry Potter fan, which was correct that I was. Um, and they, so uh, I went to lunch with them. And eventually, you know, time, they were like, okay, we'll do this with time. Time, you can do it. And the, the other side of this is, um, we talked about this a little before. You know, when you are a journalist and you're writing a story, sometimes you're part of the story. And, but more often, uh, you know, you're a very small part of the story, which is weird because you're in the story. You're in every scene of the story. And uh, if you're not talking about who you are and what's going on with you, it's like you're this sort of, you know, you're like the black planet. You're sweeping through the solar system, perturbing everything with your gravity, but nobody can observe you directly. Uh, and this was one of those stories that I was a big part of um, uh, in a way that you can't see when you actually read the story. Uh, and one of the things that was going on with me uh, was uh, I was in the middle of a divorce, and I was uh, not even, I was just in the early bit where you're just realizing that wow, actually this is it's like the you know the early bit of the car accident where you're you're like oh my god this is actually happening, and I was just in a very you know volatile difficult place emotionally and uh, I was depressed and I wasn't getting therapy or anything I was just kind of cope on my own uh, and it was like I was in a very sort of difficult place in my life. Um, and I think one of the reasons Time sent me on this is uh, I think that they actually had a kind of unofficial policy that they, when, when you're going through essentially a nervous breakdown, they would, offer you, they would send you on, they would send people on these kind of uh, junket type assignments. They would, uh, I, know, I know that there were people who got, were getting divorced and they just got sent to like, you know, Fiji or something for some story. I know that that happened. I've seen it happen several times and it happened to me. They said, why don't you just go to Edinburgh and you it's know great, talk, talk to J.K. Rowling for a bit? You'll great feel, place to work. You'll feel better. <laughs> uh, and it was um, uh, they rolled it out. Uh, they, v, for, v for Vendetta was shooting in London at the time, so they said, "Fine, go over. You know, spend a few days with Natalie Portman. Spend a few days with J.K. Rowling. You'll be a new man when you <laughs> when you come home." <laughs> um, Best job ever. I know. And I was like, "Great, okay, fine, I can do this." Uh, and uh, it's, you know, so I went over. Uh, I spent a few days in London. Um, uh, you know, they were shooting uh, V for Vendetta in like a decommissioned subway station. Uh, they had there was like a there's a very deep tube station that they keep open for to use as a movie set, um, and it's very far underground. And you every and you go down this. It takes you. There's a spiral staircase. It takes you 15 minutes to go all the way down to the bottom of this staircase, and there's no elevator. Uh, and it's freezing cold down there because you're basically, you know, you're far enough under the earth that the sun no longer warms you, but you haven't reached the magma that's <laughs> at the center of the earth. So it's very cold. Down. So it's me, uh, 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 Natalie Portman, and Hugo Weaving in a wooden mask, um, you know, down there for like a week, uh, hanging out, and I'm sort of moping around the set. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in movie sets, but like when you're the journalist, you're the only guy with nothing to do, so you're sitting there uh, with your notebook, um, huddling and like drinking tea and uh, trying to bother Natalie Portman to talk to you. Um, so I did that for a few days, uh, and then uh, I got on a plane and I went to Edinburgh, um, and uh, it's, it's sort of 
just it, try imagine if you will uh, um, if uh, you know interviewing somebody is a little bit like being set up on a date with somebody and if you can imagine you were in a really emotionally low low self esteem just romantic disaster situation someone's like I've got this friend Joe Joe Rowling I think you guys would really get along why don't you guys just spend some time together it'd <laughs> be like oh my god this is amazing. Uh, and yet, you know, how can I possibly do this? I can't even face this, you know, incredibly beautiful genius woman who created Harry Potter. Uh, uh, when I feel so wretched and like vile myself, how can I face this angelic person? Um, uh, so I spent a couple days drinking to get ready. Uh, this was Edinburgh. Uh, I don't know if you can still smoke in bars in Edinburgh, but at the time you still could. And I, you know, there was this sort of punk bar near my hotel that I just spent all day every day and just drinking beer and smoking and reading through the books and getting ready uh and you know i'm just i'm growing stubble um i'm ceasing to be a human being because uh, you're alone in this hotel room that's the other thing about this is when you do these high pressure interviews pro you have probably spent you know between 48 and 72 hours in total isolation uh before you speak to this person um which doesn't always leave you in you know, in the greatest sort of state uh, in which to interact with your fellow humans. So, you know, these two scholastic VPs come to my hotel, scrape me off the floor with, like, one of those squeegee things you use to get ice off, <laughs> ice off your car. Uh, they, you know, they put me in the huge limo. We drive to her uh, enormous, beautiful house. The gates part as by magic, although it was probably electricity. <laughs> uh, and they drive you in, and uh, you don't get to go to the ma main house. Rolly has since sold this house which is sad because it had sentimental value to me that she lived there because I'd been there. She has since sold this house. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a huge, big house. There's a sort of smaller house, still larger than all three of our houses put together, which was her writing house. Uh, and we went in there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. She's sort of just sitting there at a table waiting for you to talk to her. Uh, and, you know, the, the twist of the story is that we had this just – really great conversation we had talked we talked for two hours you know no interruptions uh it was not it wasn't awkward she was very warm um uh she had just had a kid a few months ago i'd had a kid a few months ago um she just quit, quit smoking we talked about that we talked about c.s lewis we talked about religion and politics uh and and sex and evil and, you know, why fathers screw up their children uh, and the Dursleys. We're talking about the Dursleys a lot for a lot of <laughs> I was writing The Magicians at that time, and I had become really obsessed with the Dursleys, um, <coughs> uh, who were uh, – Dudley was kind of the inspiration for the Julia character, and I was thinking mm. a lot about them. Um, I did not, I'm proud to say, let on to her that I was writing a story that was basically fan fiction of her book. Um, I managed to keep that, you know, uh, off the record. Um, and out of the room. But we had just had this very pleasant conversation, um, and I can remember actually saying, you know, I, I felt nervous coming here because of the way that you had portrayed journalists uh, in the books in the person of Rita Skeeter. Uh, and she was like, oh, yeah, Rita Skeeter. You know, I actually really like Rita Skeeter, and I have a lot of respect for her. And I, and I was like, well, you know, she to become an unregistered animagus. I mean, that obviously took some grit. <laughs> She's like, I know, right? And I was like, I know, right? And it's just like I'm geeking out with my friend about animaguses anime guy uh and then i'm like oh it's jk rowling right okay uh <laughs> it was a really fun pleasant warm conversation uh i'm happy to say i still have a whole transcript of it so you know i have this conversation uh and it was just great and i left and i was flying and she um 
signed a book for my daughter. Oh, uh, man. Uh, you know, it was just uh, it was just so pleasant, and uh, you know, and then I went back to my hotel room, um, and you know, it was like the um, it was like the bell jar descended again. You know, in the, in Sylvia Plath's the bell jar, how she mm. feels like she's under this bell jar, and that's when she feels crazy and terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just like the bell jar just like clamped back down, and like I had felt human for a moment, but now I was like Rita Skeeter in human form, and then I became like the beetle again. And uh, I just became this horrible Kafkaesque uh, insect. Uh, and you know, one of the things with a story like that, uh, the timing's always very difficult because uh, you do the story right before the book release, um, and also it, as it happened, right before time's closing. So I think I, fin- I did the interview on Thursday. Time closed at that time, you know, about five o'clock on Saturday. So I had to transcribe the interview uh, and turn it into a, a you know a. a feature-length profile, uh, you know, really in sort of 24, 36 hours. Um, and, you know, this was, I came back thinking this is the this is the greatest story of my life, you know, this is the best professional moment of my career. Uh, the story is such shit. It's so, I got back and I just like, I face-planted. I just, I didn't know what to do with it. And I wrote this incredibly crap story, incredibly crap, so much so that it became news how crap it was. Like this became a little story in the news cycle about how Time had run this incredibly bad story about J.K. Rowling. Really? If you, you, I, this was 2005. Twitter did not exist yet. Oh, my God. If it had. <laughs> if it had. If, it, if that story happened today, my career would have been over. It was such a terrible story, and I, Terry Pratchett, like, held a news conference, and it was just like, can you believe that this time read this thing? And Neil Gaiman was like, I know it's so shit. Uh, I don't think Neil realizes that it was me who wrote that story. We've <laughs> met, we've met since then, and you know, we have a nice, nice chatting relationship. He doesn't realize that it was me who wrote that story. Um, it was such a terrible story. I blew it so utterly, completely, uh, and uh, you know, I sort of, I, I, I was just like, I thought for a moment that I was an okay person, but in fact. I am as vile as I thought. And then I went home and, you know, my wife kicked me out of the house and that was the end of my marriage. Oh, it doesn't have a really, redempt, doesn't have a redempting. Oh, and then, you know, there was a, almost a lawsuit because then the story got syndicated in Europe, uh, which apparently broke a legal agreement between us and Scholastic, so there was a huge legal dust up. It was just, it was just a smoking crater uh, left behind from this, you know, this, this uh, uh, what sh- should have been, you know, one of the highlights of my personal and professional life jesus i i mean so, so it's a it's a disappoint <laughs> it ends on a dark note and also v for vendetta was so terrible what a bad movie that was but you're doing great now <laughs> no, i know <laughs> things have really i really I say the redemption is where we are yeah no today. i know i mean not particularly with us two but like the rest of your career i i assume that rolling doesn't even read her press and probably never knows that that happened uh, I can only i can only hope that i i i i saw her i've only ever seen her once since then um, when she was doing her um, uh, press tour for the Casual Vacancy, uh, which she did the Carnegie Hall event, right? That's right. I was there. Yeah. Um, and afterwards, you'd, they, there was a signing, and you would go, and uh, um, she would sort of shake everybody's hand and sign your book. Um, and I was in the line thinking, what if she remembers? What if she remembers? What if she remembers this nice conversation we had, and is really pleased to see me? What if she remembers the piece that was so terrible? Um, and and it's, it's just like, oh, my God, like, this guy's a stalker. Security, please. Of course, she remembered neither of those things. And it's just <laughs> like, oh, nice to meet you. And then, you know, I had my two seconds with Rowling. Um, uh, so, um, well, there that, was one, one good thing that came of it. You got the book for your daughter. I know, right? Yeah. That thing is, you know, 
That's in a bank vault. So yep. what do you so what do you think the thinking back to it, it sounds yeah. like it was an incredibly difficult personal moment. But yeah. can you pinpoint a moment in the writing of that story where it all went wrong? Um Yeah, it uh uh this has happened to be, you know, many times since then and I've learned to kind of relax out of it. But you know, you get you get excited, you've got the story. It, it's there, it's on tape, you've got it, and nobody else has it. And you are just going to um, uh, uh, you're going to you're going to turn it into this just incredible. It's like Tom <coughs> Wolfe. It's just the tangerine flake baby. You've got it. Um, and you sort of forget for a second that you're not Tom Wolfe, um, and that you don't have to turn it into anything. You have the story. If we had run the transcript of that conversation, it would have been a, it would have killed. Uh, it's because it's a it's a great it's 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 a great conversation. It's all there. And I, you know, I tried to turn it into something amazing, um, which, which, paradoxically, turned it in, turned it into junk. I tried to spin it or something like that. There's no spin. Everybody asks you, "What's your angle in the story? What's your spin on the story?" Ninety-eight times out of a hundred, uh, you don't have any spin. You know, it, it's it's almost always a mistake to spin a story like that. You just you just write it down. You just tell it straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that was my mistake. I tried to spin it when it wasn't a spinny story. Um, and I tried to be funny, and it wasn't a funny story. I tried to be ironic. It's not an ironic story. Um, I should have just sort of, I should have sort of gone limp, you know, mm. and like Chuck Yeager, in the when the, uh, you know, he's doing the high altitude flight, and mm-hmm. it's a Tom Wolfe analogy. Um, just take your hands off the controls. Uh, that's what saved his life, and it would have saved that story. But uh, I wouldn't do it. I tried to mess with it, and uh, I got into trouble. Is this something that you deal with frequently? Because one of the things that I've noticed um, about one of the things that I love about the magicians is the strength of the voice, and it comes through in the writing. And it reminds me so much of someone like Douglas Adams, where part of the fun of the reading is the voice that it's written in. Yeah. Um, do you find yourself struggling at all to translate that voice between fiction and nonfiction when you move back and forth? <sighs> it's a good question. It is a good question. Um, uh, you know, every once in a while, it gets into it, it gets into time in a good way. It's something I've only really learned to do recently. Actually, is to bring that story into into journalism without completely distorting the story. Um, uh, there's even a couple moments in the uh, the Apple story I just did where I thought, right, there's a little touch in there which you know I learned to do from fiction. Um, I wish I could quote it offhand. A week ago, I could have because I was just coming off the story. Um, you know, where it was, it was you know it was a nice turn. It was funny. Showed a little perspective. Something I learned from Neil Stevenson. If you've ever read Neil Stevenson's journalism, uh, it's just unbelievably brilliant. There's very little in journalism that I did that that uh, that I do that I didn't learn from his big Wired cover, um, uh, Mother Earth, Mother Ward, which is it's funny you don't see it kicking around, but it is a classic, um, every bit as much as the right stuff. Um, and he shows you what to do um, and how to bring a novelist's voice to 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 what is otherwise straight journalism. Um, so you know the two voices they they talk they talk to each other uh, a little bit but you know uh, one of the great things I guess about about balancing journalism and fiction is you, you sort of you let everything out in fiction while your sort of journalism well fills back up then you go do the journalism you pull out of that well and then the fiction wells um, uh, filling up um, but you know it, it's often a mistake to to cross the streams just like in, in Ghostbusters <laughs> there there is one comment that I absolutely have to come back to. You mentioned that Julia is based on a Dursley, Dudley. Dudley, yeah. 
Yeah. Julia is based on Dudley. Um, I would never have pulled that. Yeah, poor old Dudley. She, she, she's the outsider that's like kind of exposed to the world. She's, yeah, I mean, Dudley, uh, I've always felt that Dudley, there's, a, there's some pathos to Dudley. Um, uh, <coughs> because, you know, if you were, if you were, you were growing up and, and in your house lived your little, like, little puke of a cousin or whatever who'd been orphaned or something. I don't know. Um, everybody's supposed to feel bad for him. Um, but, you know, he's shot in the cupboard. And then it, it – I mean, Dudley knows that Harry goes to Hogwarts. It's not a secret from him. He knows that his, 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 his cousin goes to a school for magic where he gets to, like, eat magic food and, you know, have superpowers. Um, if it were me, if I were Dudley, I would just I – would, I would just be consumed consumed by this knowledge and say, why was I left behind mm. why did he go and not this is, this is why Dudley is a better person than me um, <laughs> he's like a frightened of Harry but basically okay he feels he's okay with, with being Dudley Dursley um, I would just sort of I think it would just eat away at me and I would wonder there's magic happening all around me but I I can't touch it I'm not deemed worthy of it um, why is that and I was I became really interested in this idea of, 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 of being left behind and this is actually one of the few things that I did bring up with Rowling when I spoke to her um, I didn't tell her anything about the magicians but um, I, I, I did ask her whether she hadn't been a little hard on, on Dudley uh, and people have come down on her for making the Dursleys fat which I actually think was a miscue on her part um, why do they have to be chubby and also mean and bad like you know, <laughs> couldn't they just be mesomorphic and mean and bad? No, no, they had to be. They had to be fat. Um, I think that was a mistake on her part. But I always said, yeah, "Aren't you a little hard on the Dursleys?" I mean, it, you know, I, I try to frame out for her this portrait of of Dudley Dursley as an object of pathos, and I can tell you what she said because it consisted of two words. She said. Oh, please. <laughs> and I was like, okay, check. Next question. Um, so I, I, I put that to her. But I do, I, I stand by the idea that there is some, some pathos in figure in this, in, in this um, uh, pathos in that figure. Um, and it sort of spun off into Julia. Do you think she's read your books? I am pretty confident that she has not. Um, well, I don't know much about it, to tell you the truth. Uh, Maybe someday um, one of us can ask her. <laughs> um, Get her on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, I'll run to somebody who's you know who who knows Rowling, and there's sort of one degree of separation. And I and I I try to be cool, but I I've always try I've I, I have always wanted to know whether she's read them. I'm sure, and that's in the flap currently going on about the way she's portraying American schools for magic. Someone has mentioned to her, "Oh, have you seen you know this thing?" Oh, like, she's definitely heard of it. Uh, um, uh, and I looked maybe a little nod, a little <laughs> wink in her coverage, her her version of the mm. schools that would sort of say, oh, I've read this, I know about it. Um, I don't think that's how, that's not how Joe rolls. But uh, sh- I, feel sh- uh, I feel sure that, that it's impinged on her consciousness in some way. I mean, I, I admire your, your desire to, to be cool. I don't think I ever could in that situation. I don't think the, there's a cool bone in my body. It would just melt. I'd be Alex Mack. In front of J.K. Rowling. <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting that you find at least some empathy with the Dursleys. The Dursleys as a whole have always just been such a black cloud of uh, 
just negative feeling from someone who read it growing up. I, I had never, you just cast Dudley in a new light for me and I'm not trying, I'm enjoying this, this new side <laughs> of him. Well, they, they get a little bit of, you see, uh, get, they get a little redemption in Deathly Hallows. They do. Uh, yeah. I feel like. And, um, uh, so, you know, she, as Rowling always does, she, no one is pure black and pure white. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's pure evil or pure good. She always rounds out their character and gives them some nuance. And she does that right towards the end with the Dursleys. Yeah. And I mean, at, at the end of the day, no matter how terrible they are or were, you know, they did it all so that they could protect Harry. So they kept him safe. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Lev. This was a ton of fun. Thank uh, you, guys. Yeah. Thank I you so much really for taking the time it. to talk to us. Well, so. so, Lev, one thing before you go. If people want to find more of your work, where should they go? How do they follow you on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter way more than I should be. Um, at Leverus. Rhymes with Severus. Um, <laughs> that's an in-joke. Uh, um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook periodically. And then just levgrossman.com. Oof, that was the nerdiest one we've done yet. I'm so happy with the way that came out. Yeah, it was so awesome. Uh, I love Lev. Uh, I love Lev and I love talking about Harry Potter with people who care about Harry Potter. You, also, got, you got to quit the Harry Potter thing, I man. I can't help it, man. It's just a, it's a theme in my life and it's going to continue, so get used to it. All right, so let's talk about Lev's books. What are they called? The Magicians. If you haven't read them yet, do yourself a favor and find them and read them and then read them again. There's also a TV show based on the books at on Sci-Fi. Uh, you can find that, you know, whatever your service provider is, you can stream it online. It's awesome. So we really want to thank Lev for coming on the show. You can find him online at levgrossman.com or by Googling his name. On Twitter at Leverus, L-E-V-E-R-U-S. It rhymes with Severus, and he is awesome to follow. Uh, thank you all for listening. You can find us online at www.podcast.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter at tinyletter.com slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud under Writers Who Don't Write. We really appreciate every review, subscription, follow, like, or text message telling us what you think of the show, good or bad. And the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the show and a little bit in the middle is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. You can find him online at hollandpattonpubliclibrary.com. We'll see you next week. You just get exhausted after a while, and that part of you breaks down, and you start writing things you actually mean. Mm